this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I have some great news for all of our loyal listeners in Australia. All CEUs now has a site based in Sydney. It is australia.allceus.com. It has all the content from our U.S. site, but pages load in less than a second, so you don't have to endure that long overseas lag. We are also in the process of getting all of our courses ACA approved. Try out a course for free at australia.allceus.com slash free. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Donna Lee Snipes, and today we're going to be talking about the psychosocial impact of trauma. There's a lot of different impacts of trauma, but we really want to look today at how people experience trauma or people who have experienced trauma, how it impacts their relationships and their worldview and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> we're going to learn about the effects of trauma on the person and the family. Explore how these effects impact mood, behavior, and relationships, hence the psycho part of the psychosocial, and identify tools to help people navigate life while adjusting to what we're going to call their new reality. What are the traumas you see? And we see a lot of different traumas. We see adverse childhood experiences. We see house fires. We see people who are um, trying to adjust after a loved one dies. We see domestic violence, child neglect, mothers who have, or parents who have miscarried, or mis miscarried. And miscarriage can be really traumatic. If it's for bad miscarriages, it tends to be more traumatic for them if they're third trimester and actually have to deliver the baby as opposed to earlier on, but it still can be traumatic to people. Forcible felonies, obviously, and also I want to consider chronic exposure to people who've experienced any of the above. So counselors, we hear about this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. So we are primed for secondary traumatization, law enforcement, emergency room docs, emer emergency medical service personnel, any of those people. And Renee ra raises a good point that um, when there's a miscarriage, the children also in the family who are already in the family may also experience a trauma from it. So that's a really good point. Remember that what is traumatic to one person may not be traumatic to another and you can be the same age you can be the same in a lot of different ways but it may not be traumatic to somebody else and what is traumatic to a child may not seem traumatic to adults and we've talked about this a little bit before because you know i have teenagers and some of y'all have teenagers and what is traumatic to a teenager what seems like the end of the world we see it and we're like, oh, honey, you have no idea. That's nothing compared to. But it's traumatic for that person at that point in time based on their history, which is they have far fewer experiences than we do. They have a far smaller frame of reference than we do. 
we're conscious of the things that can be traumatic. What's traumatic to a four-year-old may not be traumatic to an eight-year-old. I remember one time my son was in the house. He was probably four, three, four, and we were out back washing the car and he was inside he had just woke up from his nap and he looked out his window and we were out there washing the car and he's like okay whatever hi mommy and you know we waved and then i was finished washing the car so i got in the car and i turned it on and i backed it out started backing it out of the backyard and his eyes got all big and he lost his stuffing because he thought I was leaving him and leaving him alone, which I would never do. And I saw him just like, just hit, start to become hysterical. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So obviously I turned off the car and ran inside and tended to my child. But that was traumatic to him because he thought he was going to be alone. And that was terrifying. Um. Now, was it a an enduring trauma? No, but we do need to be cognizant of how things can be interpreted by different people. Trauma triage, and this isn't 100%, but it does kind of give you an understanding in some circumstances, especially with adults, why some people may perceive something as more stressful or more traumatic than somebody else. Being the victim or similarity to the victim. Obviously, if you're the victim, then it's going to be more traumatic than if, if you're not. Uh, or if you're similar to the victim. And I work with law enforcement a lot. And when they go, for example, to drownings and there's a toddler who's drowned in a pool, uh, there are officers who respond who, I mean, it's traumatic. It's awful for them to see. But they're able to compartmentalize it and it doesn't hit them as hard as officers who have a similarly aged child at home or, you know, a younger child at home. And they can visualize, you know, in their mind, their mind's like, oh my gosh, this could be your kid. So being the victim or similarity to the victim. And the same thing is true when we look at if you're working with, with rape victims, if you are working with somebody who is just like you then it can seem more traumatic because it's not an us-them thing. There's That safety isn't there. Proximity to a safe zone. And this is not necessarily just home. If you feel safe at work and something happens right outside your work or at your work, then you may experience um, more traumatic reactions or more more stronger traumatic reaction than something that occurred across the city or in another country. How many stressors you've experienced in the prior six months? When we experience stressors, we need time to regroup and reground. And if somebody is just getting pummeled by stressor after stressor after stressor, they don't have to be big things. You know, little things can add up and they add up exponentially. Prior mental health, trauma, or substance abuse issues. Those have been correlated with having more difficult time dealing with, with traumas. Access to social support within four hours. Four hours is our primary window here because after four hours, people start compartmentalizing it a little bit. So they found that within four hours, getting social support is the best. Within 24 hours is still really good. 
once you pass that 72-hour window, the person has gotten to some stage of numbness, if you will, or some stage of compartmentalization where it's going to be hard to tap into that a little bit more. So it is really important to talk to people. And if they say, no, nobody was there for me, oh my gosh, then it is probably more likely that they're experiencing more difficulty with the trauma because they weren't able to process it. They just, they were sitting there with this thing and they're like, what do I do with this? And I see some comments in here about uh, trauma impacting wives of soldiers when another, sp another spouse's significant other is wounded or killed in action. Very true. And we see the same thing in law enforcement. When one of our teammates um, is killed and, and the families, not just the wives, but the families may be sent reeling with this, this because they're like, oh my gosh, that could have been us, you know. We do need to be aware of this and how secondary traumatization can occur for those things. And Nicole brings out miscarriages are difficult and major medical incidents can be traumatic. So see, we're coming up with all of these traumas that people experience on a regular basis. And my former boss, for example, has diabetes. And he ended up not being able to control it very well, and he had his leg amputated. And when I look at him, you know, it was like one day he was doing fine and the next day he's in the hospital getting his leg amputated. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Um, and wh while I don't have diabetes, my aunt does. And they're having a hard time controlling her diabetes. So that was more poignant for me when, when that happened to him. So there are a lot of things to think about. So fact checker. How did I get there? Effects of trauma on the person. Chronic stress or repeated trauma can result in a number of biological reactions, including a persistent fear state, which shapes the perception of the environment, especially if this happens in children, but not always. If you're exposed to chronic stress, think about people who are in domestically violent relationships. It alters your perception of safety. It alters your per perception of the environment, and it alters your perception of yourself. Some interventions that we can work with once the person is in a place where they're safe obviously if they are in a dangerous place it's going to be hard to alter their perception because their perception may be spot on where they're at is not safe once they're in a safe place then we can help them with um, positive journaling and there were several articles that i read that uh, had people engage in journaling 20 to 30 minutes a day, which sounds like a lot, they would write down all the positive things that happened that day. That's all they were supposed to write down. It wasn't one of those journaling, let's write about our whole day. Just writing about the positive things. And after 30 days of doing that, they found that people had an improved mood and seemed to um, respond better on measures of resilience, depression, anxiety, all that kind of stuff. And those results seem to stay, you know, 
continue months after the trial. Now, you know, once you get past six months or so, if they're not continuing to do positive journaling, I don't know how long that would, that, that change would uh, stick around. But it is interesting to note. One of the caveats with positive journaling is I don't want to minimize people and, and their negative experiences. I don't want to say, well, just ignore those, you know, those kind of sucked. But let's focus on the positive. You know, there's a time and a place to focus on everything. But encouraging them to set aside 30 minutes a day to get into a positive frame of mind. Mindfulness has also been shown to be helpful to encourage people to become aware of their persistent fear state and how it's affecting their perception and the environment. And cognitive behavioral interventions. When people endure chronic stress, it seems like they're always in danger. It seems like everybody's out to get them. It seems like all those catastrophic thoughts and all or nothing thinking can be very detrimental to the person because then they're walking into a bank, for example, and going, this isn't safe, I could be victimized. Or they're getting on a plane and the first thing they think of is all the things that could go wrong. We want to help them do that. And we'll get to the fact checker in a minute. A single trauma can alter a person's sense of safety and worldview. It doesn't need to be chronic. One single trauma can alter a person's sense of safety. One single trauma to a child who relies on mom and dad for sustenance and everything else can have lasting impacts on their development. We do want to pay attention to that. And the trauma is as defined by the person. Not if I look at it and go, well, that wasn't that big of a deal, you know. If the person goes through it, remember, people experience trauma differently. If the person goes through it and they're like, you know, it was not that big of a deal, then it's probably not going to have the same impact than if the person went through it and they're like, I don't know what you're thinking, but that was pretty horrible. Um, people with a persistent fear response may lose their ability to, to differentiate between danger and safety. Because it always feels dangerous. And they may identify a threat in a non-threatening situation, hence the hypervigilance. So the fact checker that I use, and I encourage clients to keep this on a, on a notepad or on their phone or whatever. What is the situation that is causing me to feel anxious or angry? What are the facts supporting this feeling? And that is to encourage people to look at, you know, what is the logical information here? Am I confusing high and low probability events? You go into a bank, is there a chance that the bank could get robbed? Yeah. Is that a high or a low probability event? Are you unsafe going into a, a bank? You know, probably not. 99.99999, however many nines percent of the time, you're probably going to be fine. How does this situation remind me of other times when I've been angry or afraid? Encouraging people to look from a, a psychodynamic perspective, maybe they were at some other place when 
it was robbed or, or whatever. And going into this place reminds them of that. And it was traumatic. Or taking the medical procedures. Maybe they went into the hospital for something and it was a very traumatic event. And then they have to go back to the hospital even to visit somebody. And they walk in there and they're like, oh, this is, this is not good. Encouraging them to understand the impact of their past on their present. And what is different in this situation? Encouraging them, you know, we'll take the medical example. The person who's there now is visiting someone. You know, they're not injured, so, so they're fine. And as opposed to before when they had some catastrophic thing happen. Or even if they're having surgery again and it was something catastrophic before, reminding themselves that this is not the same situation, not the same doctors, whatever it is, so they can focus on the differences and the hope for a positive outcome. Walking to your car at night is another one of those that, you know, some of us feel really uneasy walking to our car at night, especially if it's not like right outside the door, if you're having to walk through this dark parking lot or, you know, a, a parking structure where you can hear footsteps echo and it's kind of eerie. Okay, you know, what are the... What is in the situation is causing me to feel anxious or angry? It's eerie. Am I confusing high and low probability events? Yeah, I'm probably going to be fine walking to my car. Does this situation remind me of other times when I've been angry or afraid? Uh, now, here's one. How many times have we seen somebody get attacked in a parking lot or walking to their car on a television show? Our brain doesn't differentiate sometimes between real life and television. So if we saw that on television multiple times, it seems like it's a lot more likely to happen. Trauma's impact on the person. Uh, and, and remember, in, in this presentation, we're really just talking about the psychosocial impacts, not... Um, all of the biological, neurological impacts. Emotions. People experience emotional numbing when they go through trauma. Not everybody. Everybody experiences trauma differently, but some people experience emotional numbing. And they take all their feelings, and I call it Pandora's box, and they stuff that event into this box, they lock it up tight, and they put it on a shelf somewhere in the recesses of their mind, or they hope it's on the recesses of their mind. And they are terrified to explore that event because exploring it means having to open Pandora's box, and we know what happens when that happens. Some people experience depression. Hopeless, helpless, sense of loss kind of makes sense. When you experience a trauma, Generally, you feel victimized or a sense of loss in some way where you do experience horror, hopelessness, and helplessness. It's one of the criteria for PTSD. Anxiety. You may have anxiety that will happen again, that you're broken or unlovable. Now that this has happened, you know, maybe I'm not lovable. After miscarriages, I often hear women say, you know, I had a miscarriage, and that's, like, supposed to be the most natural thing for somebody to do, and I've had three of them in a row. I can't seem to carry a baby to term. I must be broken in some way. I'm not a good female. Or if they have to have an emergency hysterectomy, a lot of women 
that's very traumatic for them to not be able to even have the option to have children anymore and they feel less feminine if you will aside from the concerns about all the health impacts of having a complete hysterectomy but there are a lot of things that can happen and it affects the way people feel about themselves and they may feel like they won't recover from this you know i can't go on like this after this experience i can't see being myself again and yes trauma changes people everything changes people it is how are you going to find your new normal people can be angry at their higher power for letting it happen to them they can be angry at their higher power for not protecting them they can blame other people for what happened to them it's like if you would have picked me up from work then i wouldn't have had to walk to my car in the parking garage and this wouldn't have happened or if you would have remembered to check the doors then the person would have wouldn't have broken in or whatever the case is and they can be angry at themselves if i would have been paying more attention this wouldn't have happened so anger can go a lot of different places and we need to work through it part of the grieving process denial anger bargaining depression and acceptance anger is right in there when we get angry remember what is anger anger is the fight part of the fight or flight response when there's a trauma you know that's not good so it triggers our fight or flight response so it makes sense that people are angry we need to help them figure out what they're angry at and who they're angry with and really go through that fact checker again and maybe they're angry at their spouse for not picking them up after work and and they blame their spouse for what happened for example okay well then that may be something that they need to work through and and deal with in order to prevent that marriage or that from from dissolving grief people experience grief when you experience a trauma a lot of times it represents a loss of some sort and what do we do with losses we've got to grieve them guilt now guilt i probably should have put up with anger because guilt is anger on towards ourselves either for what we did you know i'm angry at myself for going on a run at two o'clock in the morning with my headphones on or what we didn't do you know and and you know i should have been more careful at you know and, and turning the oven off so you know so the house didn't catch fire and some people may feel i should have fought harder guilt is another thing i should have and we hear those guilt when we hear those shoulds they're natural people are going to feel them and i remind them that that's that anger at themselves that's their brain going how can i prevent this from happening again what do i need to do differently next time it's that fight or flight response but it's kind of turned towards the self going all right what do you need to do and some people feel guilty because they survived that's really important to recognize if they were in a, a car crash and three other people were in the car and got killed that's traumatic and they may not feel like they deserve to live 
And even if they weren't the one driving, they may feel guilty for surviving. We see survivor guilt in soldiers. We see survivor guilt in a lot of different situations. PTSD is, you know, it's not really an emotion, but it's a traumatic impact on the person. It is important to evaluate people who have experienced a trauma, no matter how big or how small, if they identify it as a trauma, evaluate them for relapse of prior conditions. Maybe, you know, they're experiencing a trauma that they're not identifying as a 10 on a 1 to 10 scale. It's a, it's a 3 or a 4. It's traumatic, but, you know, they can, they can still breathe. They don't feel like they got the wind knocked out of them. Okay. That's fine. But... If that person had a prior history of depression or anxiety or substance abuse or something, or a prior history of other traumas, some of those things can be additive, or it could trigger a relapse into a major depressive episode, or even something like bipolar or a psychotic episode, if the stress is sufficient to um, get the neurotransmitters that far out of whack. Trauma's impact on the brain. We're going to talk about it just a wee bit. Neuronal pathways that are developed and strengthened under negative conditions prepare children or people to cope in that negative environment, and their ability to respond to nurturing and kindness may be impaired. Now, it's easier to understand this in children, but let's think about adults who are undergoing... Um, or in the middle of a domestically violent relationship, or soldiers, for example, who are fighting, and they're in a situation that is virtually never safe. So they are constantly on high alert. Every time we activate those neural pathways, the, a negative neural pathway or whatever memory pathway, think about it as like laying down a layer of concrete as you're paving that pathway. And every time you do it, you're laying down another layer. So those pathways get strengthened a lot. But the good pathways, if you're not triggering those, you're not going down there, you're not laying that concrete, so those pathways become weaker and start to crumble. Kind of like, you know, bad city planning, if you will. It makes it harder for people to respond to nurturing and kindness because they don't have the memories of it anymore, or those memories are so far gone. The brain is still forming these pathways until about 25 years of age. Soldiers, just as a side note, a lot of people enlist in the military when they're 18. So their prefrontal cortex is still actively developing, and they're undergoing this trauma, which can make it more, even more impactful in terms of the neurological changes that happen. Children and adolescents who experience neglect often have decreased electrical activity in their brains, decreased brain metabolism, poorer connections between areas of the brain that are key to integrating complex information, so learning is impaired, and abnormal patterns of adrenaline activity. We've talked a little bit about hypocortisolism before. When your cortisol levels are low, for whatever reason, and a lot of times when you're exposed to extreme stress, for a long time, your body goes, this is not something I can win. 
So I can't stay this hyped up for this long. So I'm going to dial down the sensitivity of my stress monitor, which means I'm going to hold on to those excitatory neurotransmitters until there's a problem. And when there's a problem, I'm not going to let just a little bit out. I'm going to open the floodgates. So people who have hypocortisolism often experience a lot of emotional dysregulation. They go from zero to 250 in 2.3 seconds flat. If this happens in childhood, you know, if the brain is actually altered in childhood and the uh, person's levels of cortisol are abnormal, then it's going to impact how they react to their peers. It's going to impact how they deal with stress. And being a teenager is hard enough without having problems with hypocortisolism. So you can see how problems could develop. The hippocampus, there's reduced volume in the hippocampus, which is central to learning and memory. Now, the, some of these changes are more common and more pronounced in children, and obviously less common and less pronounced in adults over the age of 25 who experience trauma. But they have found that in soldiers doing MRIs, they found that trauma actually does cause changes in the adult brain. So we don't want to say that, you know, once somebody's brain is finished growing, then they're fine. No, it ain't the case. Because of the reduced volume in the hippocampus, people may have reduced ability to bring cortisol levels back to normal after a stress, stressful event has occurred. It's kind of the definition of emotional dysregulation. You go from zero to 250, and then you can't slow down, or it takes two or three times as long to slow down. And that's not the person malingering. That's, it just takes that much longer for their system to spin back down again. The corpus callosum. There's a decreased volume in the corpus callosum, which is responsible in part for arousal, emotion, and higher cognitive abilities. Think about how this impacts people's moods and their relationships. If they have difficulty winding down, if they have difficulty returning to baseline after they get upset, and if they emotionally dysregulate, we know that people who have issues like that are often in environments that are extremely invalidating. People are telling them you just need to get over it or why are you making such a big deal out of this or whatever they're hearing. They're not getting the tools they need to figure out how to tolerate the distress. They're just being told that they're overreacting for some reason. This causes a lot of people to push others away. It's like, okay, you don't understand. And if you don't understand, I, I don't know how to explain it to you. So I'm just going to, you know, withdraw a little bit. It also can cause aggression. Because people get so frustrated, they're like, you're not listening to me. I can't. If I could, I would. So they may get even more upset. I'm not saying they're going to act out and be physically aggressive, but it can cause aggressive verbal behavior depending on the person. The prefrontal cortex, my favorite part of the brain, it's critical to behavior, cognition, emotion regulation, and impulse control. 
When the prefrontal cortex is reduced in size, then we have difficulty with these, which impacts learning. Okay, so think about children who have problems in their primary attachment relationship. They have early childhood trauma, adverse childhood experiences, whatever you want to call it. They're entering school, and they already have brain changes that are making it hard to regulate their emotions, to learn, and to restrict or moderate their impulsive behavior. It makes sense from a neurological perspective. And yes, in some cases, prior trauma can be a precipitating factor for intermittent explosive disorder. Now, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but yeah, we certainly want to look for that. One of the things that, um, and her name escapes me right now, Sandra L. Bloom talks about in her book on restoring sanctuary is changing the verbiage from why are you doing that to, oh my gosh, what happened to you that would precipitate this reaction? Because Everything we do has a reason, and generally it's survival. So what happened to you that made you feel like you had to react in that way? Helps us understand trauma a little bit better and helps us understand some of these behaviors so we can better redirect them. If we understand what happened to them, then we can help them figure out how to make themselves feel safe so they don't have the need to enact that behavior anymore. And cortisol levels are often lower than normal in the morning, coupled with flatter release levels throughout the day. Cortisol, for most people, spikes in the morning, and that's when your body says, wake up, it's time for another day, or wake up, we need a whole, whole pot of coffee, which whatever your brain says. But then throughout the day, it gradually goes down. About four or five o'clock, it's starting to get low, which is when we start getting sleepy and, you know, few hours later we're going to bed that's what it's supposed to do in people who've experienced trauma a lot of times their cortisol levels will not spike that way in the morning and then it will kind of remain flat throughout the day not declining so instead of not going up much but then declining it won't go up much but then it may stay flat which sometimes we call hypervigilance but uh, lower cortisol levels can lead to decreased energy, which can affect learning and socialization. Think about it. When your cortisol levels are low, you're tired, you're fatigued, you may have difficulty concentrating. Do these sound like symptoms of depression to you? Hmm. So again, we want to look at what, what are some of the reasons, what are the precipitating factors for the depressive symptoms that this patient is presenting with, if they're presenting with those. It may increase externalizing disorders, your intermittent explosive disorder and your oppositional defiant disorder. And it may increase vulnerability to autoimmune disorders. Cortisol helps us respond to stress. I mean, it's our main stress response neurochemical. And if those levels are wonky, then, for lack of a better term, um, it can contribute to increased inflammation and other autoimmune conditions. When people have autoimmune conditions, most of them, some of them are not painful, but they could be, you know, problematic in other ways. But a lot of autoimmune disorders have pain associated and severe fatigue associated. So again, let's think about how does that affect a person's relationships, their ability to get social support, 
their mood and their sense of hope and empowerment. You know, it, it can really have some pretty significant negative effects. And and I agree with um, Renee, Renee and Nicole both talking about how ADHD can often um, get misdiagnosed because somebody has trauma and they're reacting. They have difficulty sitting still. How many clients have you worked with that had a trauma and they have such diff they have difficulty sitting still because they can't be quiet with their thoughts if they're quiet with their thoughts it starts to get ugly so they need to move and they need to in order to stay safe in their own head they need to keep themselves distracted that makes sense so again look at all symptoms whether it's adhd or um, depression or anxiety or intermittent explosive disorder or borderline personality disorder and ask yourself in what way is this behavior protective and functional or has this behavior at some point in the person's life been protective or functional for this person? That'll give you a clue to trying to understand what interventions might be helpful. All of these brain changes can lead to difficulties with concentrating and thinking clearly. Some things that can help. It's not going to resolve the problem. But intermediate interventions. Encourage people to eliminate extra noise or distractions. So if they're having trouble concentrating or thinking clearly, especially after a trauma, I worked after Hurricane Katrina with, in the shelters with people. And, you know, there's a lot of noise and chaos and, you know, it just happens when you've got that many people on cots. And people were having difficulty thinking clearly and getting frustrated and all that kind of stuff. Encourage people to try to eliminate extra noise and distractions if they can. So if they can go to a corner of the room or if they can walk outside and sit at a picnic bench, put on headphones and listen to whatever music they want to. Instrumental is really good because it lets the brain relax a little bit more if it's not having to pay attention to, to words. What can they do in their environment to eliminate extra noise and distractions? Encourage people to stay hydrated. 1% dehydration actually leads to difficulties with concentration and um, higher order reasoning. Who knew? And you don't really even feel thirsty when you're 1% dehydrated. So encourage people to stay hydrated and write it down. If people are having difficulty concentrating, whether it's an acute trauma or it's been chronic trauma or whatever, have them write it down instead of saying, I should be able to remember this. No, just write it down. You know, for me, I know I have to write things down. My daughter wanted me to do something today. And I, you know, I haven't, well, I guess I did <laughs> a few weeks ago experienced a trauma. Um, but I, I told her, I'm like, I am not going to remember that between now and when I get to the office, so can you send me a text? You know, simple as that. Encourage people to just be assertive and be aware of what their limits are at this particular point in time. Short-term memory problems. Uh, here, <laughs> write it down again. And use a calendar with reminders. Outlook, Gmail, whatever calendar you have, if you have something that sends you reminders 
to do things. And it can be things like take your medicine. They actually have apps if the only thing you need to do is remember to take your medicine or something, um, they have apps that will remind you. You can schedule it in, and they bug you. I, I'm bad about remembering to take antibiotics three times a day. I'm like, who remembers that middle dose? But So I installed one of those apps, and it bugged the heck out of me until I would silence it and take the, the uh, lunchtime dose. But you can use it for different things. Difficulty planning or making decisions. Delay making any major decisions after a trauma. You know, no matter how big or how small, if you feel like it was a trauma or if the client feels like it was a trauma, encourage them not to make any major decisions. Maybe there was some sort of aggressive incident at work and the person's like, I can't take it, I'm quitting. See if you can delay making any major decisions or somebody's house got broken into three doors down well that's it we're moving take a breath take a breath and delay making any major decisions as long as safety isn't compromised delegate sometimes there's just there's too much to do and you know the the trauma's there you're still trying to get your what i call your land legs again and you can't think clearly to plan stuff, even to plan, plan out the meals for the week. Delegate. You know, ask somebody in your household, make a list of what you want to have for dinner each night this week, and I'll go to the grocery store and get the stuff. I've done that before. And try not to overthink. Sometimes you start trying to make decisions and plan, and it just, it seems like you can't get all the information. Encourage people to just not overthink things right now. Think about staying in the moment. Be mindful. What is it you need to do right now in order to keep moving towards your goals and put one foot in front of the other? And, and yes, Renee raises a good point that a lot of times after a trauma, people will bring meals to the person who was traumatized. Um, People were bringing casseroles and meals and stuff like crazy to, to my stepfather um, last, last month after my mother passed away. And he was like, I don't know what I'm going to do with all this food. <laughs> but they were trying to be helpful so he didn't have to think because certainly he was not remembering to eat. But those are things that we need to in- remind people to do. Thinking about this. If you have short-term memory problems, you know, if maybe people don't realize you went through a trauma, something happened at home, or you had a miscarriage, and you don't want to go tell everybody at work because it's none of their business. Okay, that's fine. How is that going to impact, not saying that you should necessarily tell them, but recognizing if, if Sally goes to work and she had this trauma over the weekend and she's not going to tell anybody at work how does that impact her interactions throughout the day um, if sally was carjacked over the weekend and you know goes to work how does that impact her relationships with other people what kind of transference reactions might she have with similar people um, so there are a lot of things that you need to Pay attention to. 
People who've experienced trauma may have difficulty learning new information. The brain is trying to survive right now. This is not the time to try to figure out E equals MC squared. This is the time to figure out how you're not going to get in a dangerous situation again. Cognition, conceptualization, and caring are the three C's of adult learning. People take in information differently. And, you know, some people take it in visually, some people take it in by listening, and some people just have to work with it. And I ask people to figure out their learning style. If you get a new piece of equipment, a new VCR, DVD player, whatever it's called now, <laughs> that's how old I am, uh, how do you figure out how to work it? Do you read the manual? Do you have somebody tell you how to do it? Or do you just start pushing buttons until you figure out what works? I'm the button pusher. <laughs> so that's cognition. You've got to get the information into your short-term memory. Conceptualization is what you relate it to in order to figure out where are you going to file this if it's going to get filed, which brings us to caring. If people don't care about something, they're probably not going to file it anywhere because they don't want to clutter up the, the file cabinet. When you're trying to get people to learn something, encourage them to relate it back to themselves. So how does this relate, you know, which is why I'm regularly asking you, you know, have you had a client who's experienced this or, you know, have you had similar experiences? So you can theoretically care and understand, okay, you know, now I see how this point she's talking about actually relates to something that might be useful to me in the future. Dunk it. When we're overwhelmed, sitting and listening to an hour lecture is just too much or doing anything for an hour maybe too much so chunk it do 10 minutes and then give yourself a break and then do 10 more minutes or whatever the case may be if you're reading a book or studying for something maybe set that you're going to read two sections or maybe a whole chapter if you're feeling really good but keep it to small manageable pieces so you get something out of it and then you can come back later Use all the senses. If you're reading something, try to highlight if you're allowed to highlight in whatever it is. Uh, obviously, you're probably not going to smell it, but talk it out. Tell somebody about it. That if you paraphrase it, you're using kinesthetic learning in a way because you're manipulating the information to paraphrase it. And then you're also hearing yourself say it. Record it on a device. And listen to your notes. There are a lot of different ways. Draw a pie chart. Tons of different ways to take in the information. And just apply it, apply it, apply it. How does this relate to me? How can I see where this would be meaningful? And if it's not, if you're in history of the world part 101, um, you know, apply it to something else that you know so so you have some memory pathway that's already a little bit laid that you're going to relate it to so it's easier to access it later. After these brain changes, people can have recurring thoughts of the traumatic event or other traumas. So teach them grounding techniques whenever they start having that thought, whether you know, it happens a lot when people are watching TV and criminal minds come, advertisement comes on or... CSI or one of those others, and people are triggered and have a 
reminder of what they went through or the news even encouraging encouraging them to learn grounding techniques my favorite is the five four three two one identify five things that you see four things that you hear three things that you smell two things that you can touch and one thing that you taste or however you want to do it but using all five senses identifying five four three two one helps people get grounded in the moment pessimistic thoughts you know it comes with the territory if those pathways have been strengthened your brain goes well it seems like more more often than not this is the the bad part of the neighborhood that we're living in so those streets are the strongest encourage them to learn Oh, sorry, I did skip over emergency plans. Um, if they're having recurrent thoughts of the trauma or traumas, or if they are afraid they're going to be triggered, have them have an emergency plan. I worked with one law enforcement officer who experienced a really bad trauma with a car wreck and um, a semi ended up bursting into flames. So the smell of exhaust fumes. Was very triggering for his traumatic memories well that's a problem when you're a patrol officer because you're gonna smell exhaust fumes so when he felt like he was going to be in a situation that he would smell exhaust fumes he was stuck on the interstate or something he had a plan for what he would do people need to have a plan for what they're going to do when they are in a situation where they might be triggered because this gives them a sense of empowerment it's like okay you know if i start feeling this way i got a plan we're good with pessimistic thoughts learned optimism is super helpful and you can google it martin seligman's work is all over the place encouraging people to practice learned optimism and they can learn it they can strengthen those pathways like I talked about with the positivity journaling but it takes time what happened in over the past 20 30 years isn't going to be undone in 20 or 30 days and encouraging them to embrace the dialectics and there's a lot written out there by especially by Linehan on helping people embrace the dialectics the fact that good and bad can simultaneously occur Trauma can impact behaviors. People may have a drop in work or school performance. So we want to know why. Instead of going, you're not pulling your weight, what's pr prompting this behavior? What happened to you? What's going on? They may be exhausted. After a trauma, sometimes people have night terrors. Sometimes they're not sleeping as well, even if they're not waking up because they're hypervigilant. They may be experiencing depression, anxiety, PTSD. Or their motivation may just not be there some things just don't seem all that gosh darn important after you've experienced a trauma it's, you know before the trauma it may have been a big deal now it's just like in, in retrospect or in perspective it just doesn't seem that important to me right now I'm barely getting along uh, encouraging people to pay attention and and Renee points out a good thing when children have a drop in school performance or they become oppositional at school we want to look and say what's going on here what is causing 
what, ha what is happening to you? What is causing this to happen? Not why are you doing this, but what is causing it? What's prompting it? And it may be they're just, they're not motivated to do their times tables right now because their dog died this weekend and they're not focused. Change eating patterns. Again, look at the cause. Sometimes when you're, when you're not sleeping and getting good quality sleep, your circadian rhythms get out of whack, your ghrelin and leptin hormones, your hunger and satiation hormones get out of whack. So you're not eating. Or sometimes people eat to self-soothe. They could be eating differently because of their mood. You know, they're, they're depressed, so they're, you know, binging on Ben and Jerry's. Or they may just not have the motivation to eat. They're like, yeah, there's food in the fridge, but that would require getting up and walking across the room. And nah. Let's take a look at that. Lack of quality sleep. Well, again, what's causing it? Could be the trauma itself. It could be substances people are using to self-medicate the trauma. It could be mood issues. If they've got depression, we know that people with major depressive disorder often have difficulty sleeping. And people who have anxiety disorders often have difficulty sleeping. And they may just not be motivated to sleep. You know, it's whatever. Most of us, when we go to sleep, we're going to get a good night's sleep so we can get up and face the next day. If people are reeling from a trauma, they may not be that eager to get up and face the next day. We want to understand what's prompting this. Using drugs or alcohol. Now, this one, generally people use drugs and alcohol to help numb or deal with overwhelming um, distress. So we want to look at what are the benefits and drawbacks of using right now. This is a coping skill you're using. However, it may not be the most effective. So what are the benefits and the drawbacks? And what are the benefits and the drawbacks to the alternative? Some people just can't even imagine not drinking, not having their wine or whatever. Okay, I'm not telling you you got to quit. We're just making a benefits and drawbacks list and help the person evaluate what's going on. And encourage people who have used drugs and alcohol in the past or currently are to return to meetings or counseling or, or whatever. That way they can get some additional support. We talked earlier about being unable to rest or keep still. Look at the function of the agitation. Are there mood symptoms? So the per if the person is anxious, they may be revved up. If they're hypervigilant, they may have difficulty keeping still. Are they having difficulty being still because they don't want to be alone with their thoughts? Or if they're not still, they're going to fall asleep and they're terrified of falling asleep because when they do, they have night terrors. Let's take a look at the function. If they have a lack of motivation, when we're exhausted, when we're not getting good quality sleep, our motivation typically goes down. Go figure. The brain says, okay, we only have half a gallon of energy today instead of a full gallon, so we're just going to conserve that energy for the basics. You're not motivated to do much. And there may be increased aggressiveness or engaging in self-destructive or self-harming activities. If people are angry because of the trauma, they may be outwardly aggressive. Well, why? If they were traumatized, then they may feel unsafe. And what does anger do? Anger tries to get, it's a power move. It's trying to get power back in some way. 
So there may be some increased aggressiveness. If they blame their parents or their spouse or somebody for not doing something that led to them being traumatized, then they may be angry and aggressive because they don't know they're trying to deal with that that sense of frustration um, and people may become increasingly aggressive or engage in self-destructive or self-harming activities in order to get flashbacks to stop if flashbacks start sometimes they feel like they're back in the moment and self-harming activities can actually help people dissociate or get regrounded because it's like okay i can feel this in the moment this is what i'm focusing on and the flashback dissipates something some, some to some extent family members may become short-tempered or irritable and children or teens may become clingy demanding argumentative or naughty or rebellious it happens we see this when there's stress in the family people tend to become more agitated in one way shape or form clingy i want my parent close to me because that makes me feel safe demanding or argumentative they're trying to get their control back naughty or rebellious they're trying again to get their control back or to get somebody to pay attention to how much they're struggling encourage family mindfulness practice um, have the family sit down at breakfast and at dinner and go around and everybody talks states how they're feeling what they're needing how they slept you know, whatever family gratitude practice same thing you can go around the the dinner table or the breakfast table and everybody says something that they're grateful for either that happened that day or just in general to strengthen those gratitude pathways encourage assertive communication have people say i am feeling you know overwhelmed because of this or if you know, we see this a lot in families where parents start to get really irritable and just it's like really junior i can't do one more thing I'm glad that you're involved in so many extracurricular activities, but I just can't take you tonight because I'm exhausted. I haven't slept well in four days or whatever the case may be. Helping Junior understand, I'm not mad at you. I'm not punishing you. I just don't have it in me right now can help a lot. And then you can start problem solving for, okay, now who's going to be taking Junior for, from now on so parent can have a break? plan for requests ahead of time have calendars out so you know when you've got to take somebody to softball or soccer or gymnastics or even go grocery shopping that way you can delegate as much as possible and encourage people to make shopping lists we have one of the dry erase boards on our refrigerator I take a picture of uh, before I go to the grocery store that way I know what everybody needs and I don't have somebody telling me as soon as I can't come home oh we needed butter too oh, I've got to go back to the store that may be too much so keeping shopping lists can also help encourage adults in the family to remember to examine the function of everyone's behavior instead of again thinking it's to be oppositional or obnoxious how what is this person needing that they're trying to get met with this behavior people may lose interest in activities or perform less well at work or school try 15 is another example of chunking whatever it is start doing it do it for 15 minutes if you're still hating it do something else most of the time it's getting started that's the hardest part 
set morning goals before you go to work. You get up, you're sitting there eating your breakfast in the morning. Okay, these are the seven things I've got to get done today. Add rewards for school or work. And even for adults, we can add rewards. If we're having a hard time getting motivated to go to work, we can give ourselves a reward at the end of the day where we can, you know, leave the dishes in the sink overnight or go to a movie or whatever it is. Individuals may feel neglected and misunderstood. So encourage mindfulness and assertiveness if they are feeling anxious about something. Remind people about the five love languages, touch, gifts, quality time, affirmation, and acts of service. When in a trauma or after a trauma, sometimes the family becomes so chaotic, people may not feel like they're being paid attention to. Remembering each person's primary love language and trying to communicate with them in that way once a day can be helpful to encourage communication and, and a sense of understoodness. Some family members may work so hard to help loved ones that they neglect to look after themselves. Parents give so much trying to help the children get settled again that they forget to take care of themselves. Self-care is so important because you're no good to anybody if you're completely worn down. Individual family members may feel less attached or involved with one another. So encourage family activities as appropriate, you know, maybe going out on Saturday, if that's possible. Parents may experience emotional or sexual problems in their relationship, so educate about how the stress of the trauma may be magnifying issues in their relationship and reducing stress, sex drive. When we are hypervigilant after a trauma, our body is not concerned with reproduction, so our, our libido actually kind of gets turned down when our HPA axis is turned up. Everyone feels exhausted and wants support but can't give much in return. Encourage people, families, to ask for help from family, from friends, from clergy, from counselors. What do you need? Because generally people are wanting to help, they just don't know what to do. Parents may feel unsure about how to help their children after the crisis. So educate them about common childhood reactions to trauma. Provide resources to find tools as problems arise. We can't guess what problem will arise in any particular family. So encourage parents and provide them resources like United Way Information Referral and particular books and websites that you think are particularly helpful after a trauma. So parents can go there if they need to. Encourage support groups. For parents, for children, people who've been in that situation, encourage them to get support from others so they can hear how others are getting through. Parents may feel guilty or helpless if a child is traumatized. So again, encourage support groups. It happens. You can't always protect your children. You'll want to, but you can't. Encouraging them to get out and use cognitive processing therapy. Household schedules are often disrupted and recreation is often neglected because people are exhausted and they're just barely getting by. So encourage them to get help when possible. If they can get somebody to come in and clean, great. If they can get somebody to bring them groceries, you know, have groceries delivered instead of having to go to the grocery store, great. Bring in dinner. You know, pizza won't kill people even if they have it two or three times in a week. I'm proof. I think I lived on it my first year in college. Simplify 
you, know, you don't have to make a six-course meal. You know, you can order in pizza. Schedule in recreation. It's not optional. You need to have some fun. And try to create a new, albeit temporary, normal. People are, who are in shelters, this is not their permanent normal, but they may be stuck there for four, five, six weeks. So what is this new normal going to look like? The usual responsibilities and boundaries change. Children may cook meals and tend to siblings if parents feel unable to do the tasks or they have to be gone. For example, at the hospital. When my son was born, he was a micropremie, and either myself or his father was there with him pretty much 24 hours a day. We didn't have any other children, but if we did, you know, obviously there would be issues to contend with. Enlist help when possible so children don't feel overburdened. If mom and dad are both at the hospital with big brother, uh, you don't want to have middle child feeling like they've got to do everything. And help parents be emotionally available to children. Sometimes parents get so caught up in trying to fix things and make them right that they have difficulty just sitting that down and being emotionally available. Changes to family life that occurred in the days, weeks, or months after the event may become permanent habits. Encourage narrative therapy. Encourage them to write their story. Write what happened. Okay, that's the closing of a chapter or the ending of a season. Now, what is the next chapter or next season going to look like? So they can see how they want this to settle out. Encourage family members to identify what their roles were pre-trauma and describe what they want to go back to. The experience may be relived when faced with a new crisis, so make sure to educate the family ahead of time about the possibility. After Hurricane Katrina, this was so true. Every time there was a forecasted hurricane, people got exceptionally, you know, devastated. And I'm sure it was the same after Harvey and all, all the other big ones. I just happened to be in Katrina. When families face a crisis, inquire about previous traumas to better understand their reactions. Problems may seem worse than they are and be more difficult to handle in the midst of a trauma. So you're driving down the car and the transmission goes out. Well, normally that's a big deal, but after a trauma, when you're already drained, that may just, you know, be the straw that broke the camel's back. So encourage proper self-care, teach distress tolerance and problem-solving skills, and make sure people have a support system or a third party they can get help from or bounce ideas off of. Family members may cope differently with reminders of the event, and this is really important. Some may want to commemorate the anniversary or revisit the scene of the event, while others may want to forget about it. This is true after a death, too. Some people really want to go to the funeral and the wake and all that stuff, and other people, they can't deal with it. It's just, you know, it's over. They don't, they don't want to think about it. And the people who are at the funeral can sometimes feel abandoned if somebody doesn't come but we need to respect people have different ways of um, coping conflict and coping styles can lead to arguments and misunderstandings if the family members aren't sensitive to each other's needs we're nearing the end of this episode but i wanted to take a minute and thank everyone who listens to counselor toolbox podcast i truly truly appreciate you 
I would be grateful if you would please go into your podcast player and rate Counselor Toolbox. The more five-star ratings we have, the higher we rank, and the more people we can reach with these free resources. If you have comments or topic suggestions, please email us at support at allceus.com. So trauma can happen to individuals, families, or communities, and can have a lasting effect on people, including actual changes to the structure of the brain, even in adults. These changes, coupled with the disruption of the person's life, can contribute to a host of issues, including anxiety, anger, depression, guilt, grief, difficulty with memory and decision-making, loss of motivation, sleeping and eating changes, withdrawal from or enmeshment in relationships, all of which can compound each other. After a trauma, people need time to regroup and find their new normal. So to assist survivors, educate them about the impact of trauma and traumatic reactions so they're not surprised. Provide hope that what they're feeling is a normal reaction to abnormal events. Provide resources and tools to help them navigate life until they start feeling more grounded. Help them figure out how to mitigate the negative effects of trauma and encourage them to think about how they want the next chapter of their life to play out. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.